is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Today is the first Monday in September, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. For this, our spring show, we have a great lineup of book reviews and author interviews to help you add a new book or two or three to your pile. Here's what you have to look forward to over the next hour. Beverly Royce Muller will be reviewing Tunnel 29 by Helena Merriman. This is the extraordinary true story of escapees who tunneled back under the Berlin Wall to help their contacts escape during the Cold War. Then we chat to Vanessa Levenstein about Trust by Hernan Diaz which was just announced as a Booker Prize Longlist nominee. And here's a fun fact we'll delve into further a little later in the show. All the music in today's show comes straight out of this incredible book. After that, it's time for an interview. John Hanks chats to Ashling McCarthy about her first book, Down at Jika Jika Tavern. Then Shirley Gueller gives us the inside track on Attic Child by Lola J, a book that has had huge international press. After that, we welcome a new guest reviewer to the show, Twanji Kalula brings all his financial savvy to review Genius, the new offering from Bruce Whitfield. In the second half of today's show, we have a really exciting segment. Beryl Eichenberger was lucky enough to interview internationally best-selling author Louisa Trigger, who was recently in South Africa to launch her new novel, Mad Woman. I'm looking forward to that conversation. And last but not least on the show, another great interview. Philip Todras chats to Professor June Bam Hutchinson, who heads the San and Koya unit in the University of Cape Town's Centre for African Studies. That's going to be a really interesting one. So it's a packed show, and I can't wait to get started. So don't go anywhere. Your dial is in exactly the right place at the right time. So let's start the show. Let's start at the very beginning, kicking off with Beverly Ruiz Miller, as promised. Beverly and I have been chatting about her reviewing this book for a long time, and I'm glad that day has finally come when we can talk about it. Tunnel 29 is not an easy book. It's a book by Helena Merriman, and it sounds like an extraordinary true story. It's about tunneling escapees under the Berlin Wall during the Cold War. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Tell us all about this book. Why would anyone dig a tunnel back to the dangerous place from which they had just escaped? This is the true story of how a group of young men who had escaped from East Berlin decided to give those behind a chance to do the same. It was dangerous and several were betrayed or imprisoned or shot. But one tunnel famously succeeded, to this day remembered as Tunnel 29 after the number of people who escaped through it shortly before it was discovered. Great escapes are fascinating. Many of you might remember that iconic one during World War II when a group of determined Allied prisoners in Germany tunneled to freedom. It was made into a great movie. This event has a South African connection. The mastermind, Roger Bushell, was from these parts and was sadly shot in the escape. His heroism is remembered in Hermanus at the Harbour War Memorial. Joachim Rudolph was just a young refugee when in August 1961 a great barrier was put up suddenly and in deep overnight secrecy between the eastern and western sectors of Berlin. 
First, barbed wire was used, and then the notorious Berlin Wall was built and remained standing for 30 years. It went through playgrounds, buildings, cemeteries, and train stations. All contact with the West, including telephones and messaging, was suddenly cut off. Joachim, aged 22, had already escaped twice. Once as a child, fleeing from eastern Germany at the end of the war, his father was killed by Russians. And again, when the barrier went up in Berlin, when he and friends quickly escaped through countryside to the western sector. He had seen what the East German Stasi could do, one of the world's most powerful and deadly police forces, and he wanted his friends and as many others as possible to enjoy a freer life. So with a small group of like-minded young men, they decided to build their tunnel back to the very place they had just left to enable people longing to leave. It was incredibly hard physical work, and also the soil in Berlin is damp, waterlogged, so they were in danger not only of suffocating in the tiny tunnel, less than a metre square, but of drowning too as it filled with water. In order to cover the necessary construction costs, air vents, electrical lighting, conveying systems, Joachim and his friends agreed to allow an American TV company, NBC, to film them under strict secrecy. As they inched forward, they could sometimes hear voices above them, high heels clipping along the pavements, barked orders from those who would certainly shoot them if they were discovered. Among the diggers were those highly motivated, some separated from sweethearts or children. On the other side, young families and others sometimes aged who would risk everything to get out. There were other tunnels, more than 70 were attempted, 19 of them successful, one of them dug by 12 elderly citizens. Most failed because of spies or diggers running out of money. It was Tunnel 29 that would provide the greatest escape and make world headlines. 21 young men gave up half a year of their lives to dig up to 10 hours a day in harsh conditions, and NBC's television documentary became a belated hit. In 2012, Joachim was awarded Germany's Federal Cross of Merit for his bravery. And ending on a happy note, he later married Evie, one of the escapees he had rescued. Tunnel 29 by Helen Merriman is a stirring, true story of courage and tenacity against great odds, unusually relevant in a time of ongoing strife in Europe. I found it fascinating. Next up, I'm excited to welcome Vanessa Levenstein, who read Trust by Hernan Diaz. I also read this book a few weeks ago, and it gave me a terrible book hangover. It was so compelling that it's taken me a while to be able to read anything else. This is one of those books that you continue unpicking in your mind for ages after reading it. Which narrator can you believe? Which story is the truth? All questions I'm still mulling over. Whose narrative is it anyway? Is the question that comes to mind when reading Trust by Hernan Diaz. Longlisted for the Booker Prize, this extraordinary novel is set in New York in the 1920s. It centers around the lives of a married couple. He is a legendary Wall Street tycoon, and she is... Ah, that's the question. Who is she? What is her story? The novel is divided into four sections, each narrated by a different voice. But whose version can we trust? The first section is called Bonds, which, like the novel's title, Trust are relationship words that can as easily slither into financial lexicon. 
Bonds, a novella within the novel, tells the story of Benjamin and his enigmatic wife, Helen Rask, who have enormous wealth and great Gatsby-like influence. While the value of a banknote has changed over the decades, what hasn't changed is what money represents. It's a symbol of power which invites envy and distrust. How many of us haven't experienced the degree of schadenfreude when the lives of the very rich unravel? While money is emotive, it's also political. One of the book's characters, a Marxist, questions the very meaning of money. Money says nothing about its owner, as opposed to having, I don't know, a talent which defines a person. Money's relationship with the individual is completely accidental. It's not only the acquisition and abuse of money that is off-colour, but there's a misogynist undercurrent. The link between the four characters becomes apparent with the introduction of Ida Patenza, daughter of the Marxist and a typist, who later becomes a journalist. She is employed by the tycoon Andrew Bevel, upon whom the character Benjamin Rusk was based. Andrew instructs Ida to put the story straight, to rewrite bonds, embellish, make up, add feminine touches to his wife's story. You must realize, I cannot let this narrative stand, he tells her. We meet both the young Ida and the 70-year-old, whose return to the story and is trying to deconstruct and make sense of her part in the narrative. Who was the real Mildred Bevel? Surely not the same person as Helen Rusk. How could she have been the meek and insipid character that her husband portrayed? Can the dispossessed be given a voice, even if it's from the grave? These are questions that not only the older Ida asks, but also the reader. Diaz resists painting marriage with one brush stroke, instead offering nuanced observations. Intimacy can be an unbearable burden for those who first experience it after a lifetime of proud self-sufficiency. It's interesting how the writer weaves through all four narratives a picture of a marriage where, in spite of the failings, there is a tenderness but no passion. Desire is not found in the bedroom. It's sublimated in the boardroom. There are evocative images throughout this novel that conjure all our senses. He wore his wealth on his body. His skin smelled different every day. His shirts were not pressed but new. His coat shone almost as much as his hair. And Mildred loved music and was a patron of the arts. She commissioned work by Schoenberg, Stravinsky, Shostakovich and Bartok, to name a few. Suspense, substantial writing and a splash of Shostakovich. What more could a reader wish for? Whether Trust makes it to the Booker shortlist, which will be announced on the 6th of September, remains to be seen. But we do know that this book is a winner. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm so interested that you enjoyed it as much as I did. And here's something else that's interesting about Trust. It's full of classical music references. And so all the tracks in this month's show come from composers mentioned in the book Trust by Hernan Diaz that Vanessa was just telling us about. This first track is Love of Three Oranges by Serge Prokofiev, performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, right here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio.
Welcome back to the show after that musical interlude. As always, sponsored by our lovely friends at Exclusive Books. Time for an interview, I think. And I always look forward to seeing what John Hanks has up his sleeve for us on the show. Today, he's chatting to a debut author, Ashling McCarthy. And this is her first foray into fiction with a book called Down at Jika Jika Tavern. Morning, John, and welcome to the show, Ashling. I'm delighted to welcome Ashling McCarthy to this edition of Book Choice to tell us what motivated her to write a novel about such an emotive and sensitive subject as rhino poaching. The book is entitled Down at Jika Jika Tavern, and the novel centers around student anthropologist Montclair Ngubane, who returns home to Zululand to be faced with the arrest of her game ranger father for rhino poaching, which she is convinced he would never do. Well, Ashling, rhino poaching is the most difficult subject. It's the driver of your plot. But what really impressed me is your grasp of the complex social issues involved in wildlife conservation in Africa today. The contrast between impoverished rural communities living right next to protected areas and the lives and attitudes of the managers of these areas. Tell us about your background and what prompted you to write this as a novel. Thanks, John, and thanks for the opportunity to share with you. Yeah, I think for me, growing up in KwaZulu-Natal, and um, I was born in uh, Lhuluwe, a small town in in Zululand, where my parents were were living. Um, They had come out from Ireland, and my dad was working at a local hotel there. And then we moved back to, to Durban, but much of our childhood was spent at game reserves and and just really enjoying wildlife and nature and just being exposed to the fact that we have such beautiful natural heritage in our country. Um, and then many la- years later, my um, parents um, actually became involved in a game farm in the Zululand area. And it was over that time that six rhinos were poached. So a, as you say, a driver in the book and uh, for the plot is rhino poaching. But really my interest lies in people their experiences and what what might drive somebody to become involved in rhino poaching. I've been working as an anthropologist for for many years now, and it really is the experiences that I've gained in living and working with people who are based in rural areas and the social inequalities that they face in their lives, which are really quite, unless you, you personally live that experience, you truly are never going to understand but it was those conversations and those experiences that I've had with people that really have helped me to, to understand context. And I wanted to weave that into the story of the book because I really felt that those voices and stories needed to be shared to really understand what motivates people to do things like rhino poaching. Well, you've certainly done it so well. I get the impression, I may be wrong, that you're a fluent Zulu speaker. Is that true? I would love to say that it is true. I am a passable speaker and I have studied at university. So I have a good understanding of, of vocabulary and, um, and being able to follow a conversation. But I must say that I have never been able to really grasp the language in terms of talking it fluently. And I think that's largely due to my own embarrassment at, at talking. But yeah, so I can't say that I, I speak it fluently, but I do have a good understanding. Well, I think you must be a very good and sympathetic listener because you've captured the vital importance of community engagement. In other words, the neighboring communities 
must have a genuine interest in the reserve if the protection of reserves and the species are going to work there. Is, is that something that you sort of gathered by talking to people and listening sympathetically? Yes, um, I think, you know, as an anthropologist, I mean, that's largely what our training is to just to sit and observe and to listen and to try and hold judgment and our own personal bias. And I've been really, really lucky to meet with amazing people who work in the field and um, who have come from some of those communities and who are now conservationists themselves. So, for example, Nunu Jobe, the, the barefoot um, game ranger who is working out of Mfilosi and just listening to his story of being a young a young boy at a primary school, you know, poaching for the pot and then joining an eco school program and how being exposed to conservation and, and the reason why we need to conserve our wildlife and our natural heritage really changed him. And I think it's, it's that, that somebody invested in that school and in that community and it opened a door for somebody like him to change his mindset and essentially his, his focus of his life's career. So I think that really is important is to, to go out and find and listen to the multiple stories and not just listen to the ones that are, are around us and are convenient to hear. Well, I think you couldn't have put it better. Well done again. The title again of this book is Down at Jika Jika Tavern. It sells for 250 rand. It's self-published. And the best way to get hold of a copy is to Google the title and see where you can buy it. Um, Ashling, this is a beautifully and sympathetically written story. Now, I'd like to encourage all listeners who want to have a better understanding of what motivates a person to become a rhino poacher, what we can do to address this problem in addition to just um, enhancing field protection, they must read this book. Ashling, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate it.
That was a polka from The Age of Gold by Dmitry Shostakovich, who sounds a bit like a tennis player. It was performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, and it's another composer who came to us straight out of the book Vanessa Levenstein reviewed earlier in the show, Trust by Hernan Diaz. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, and I'm your host, Paige Nick. We're heading into the third segment of the show now with two exciting reviews. One is fiction, and one is finance. One of our newer reviewers, Shirley Guella, joins us once again, and this month she read Attic Child by Lola J. This book has been sitting on my bedside table waiting patiently for me, so I'm listening extra closely to your review, Shirley. It's not often that I put down a book and feel bereft. And this is what happened with The Attic Child by Lola J. Yes, it is predictable from a certain point onward, and that's not a spoiler alert. It's how Miss J gets you to the end that is so compelling and so moving. It's fiction, this double story of two kids who share so much, even though some 70 years separates them. Its genesis is a portrait of a child taken from Africa to Britain in the time of Stanley. And in the boy's reimagined life, she brings the horrors of colonialism to the forefront. Yet in that horror resides empathy and love, compassion, and a sheer admiration for the way this British-Nigerian author has tackled a novel about a quest for identity and for self-validation. There's an aura of impending doom from the first page, which keeps your attention waiting for some relief, some resolution, an anticipation that grips one. And there is so much shared history, racism, class and privilege with patronizing largesse, sadness and little anger tinged with acceptance and the need to discover. Of course there are questions, anti-slavery or slavery sentiments of Sir Richard, philanthropy or potential for pederasty. Were the intentions evil, or were they just misplaced? She has the ability to draw you in with her gift for language. Attics are for discards, and of course both children were discarded. Her framework, which layers memories decades apart on contemporary events without the slightest confusion arising, and above all her ability to make the characters so utterly believable. Parallels abound. Shared experiences, shared misery, shared hopelessness. Dikembe, renamed Celestine by the explorer who took him as a kid from his Congo home and family, to be his companion, my most prized possession, my most valuable one, was brought up as a true English gentleman, where at the age of eleven he was called master by the older white servants in a somersault of social norms, yet with ever-lingering racism. Of course, school was a step to becoming civilized, and his upper-class British accent brought problems of its own. Dikembe had the ability to rise above what life shoved at him, and not only persevere but succeed. Lara, the other child, was equally abused but needed to discover her own good qualities and those she found in the search for the truth. One was wanting to experience life in all its forms, the other is so alienated from life and relationships. The seagulls above yelled violently and I wanted to shout back at them. I don't want to be here either. That's how she felt. And yet, the past that binds them, the tribal necklace, the letters scratched in that attic, as the stories unfold. I will end where I began. It's a story we all need to read because it will help us understand where we all came from and it has stayed with me long after I turned the last page. I like the sound of that. Thank you, Shirley. I'm thrilled to welcome our next reviewer to the show for the first time. Twanji Kalula joins us this month as a guest reviewer. Twanji has spent well over a decade working in media, creating content for, well, for just about everyone. 
He's currently the editor of the annual English Alive anthology. He's the co-chair of the Cape Town Press Club, and he works as a communications specialist in the financial services industry. So it's kind of remarkable that he found any time at all to read the latest offering from Bruce Whitfield called Genius, let alone coming here to tell us about it. Welcome to the show, Twanji. What did you think? I recently finished reading Genius, which is the second book by financial journalist and broadcaster Bruce Whitfield. Now, in case you're wondering whether it was an autobiography, no, it is not. In fact, the book is, I guess, Lucy described as a guide to kind of take smart ideas global. Now, of course, as the host of one of the country's leading business broadcast shows. Bruce Whitfield has a front row seat to the daily market movements and access to business leaders and entrepreneurs. He also has insight into the fascinating business stories that come out of South Africa. I honestly hadn't thought about global business in South Africa since the creepy Crawley came out and we kind of celebrated that. But if you dig a little deeper, there are many stories of extraordinary people and companies who are driving innovation and solving real problems around the world. Throughout the book, he talks about many different different industries in the restaurant industry, for example, he looks at how Nando's, Ocean Basket, and then, of course, Tashes have kind of begun to grow their global footprint. In fact, one of the most interesting bits of trivia I picked up was that Nando's has the largest South African contemporary art collection in the world. No matter where you are, when you step into Nando's, you'll encounter original contemporary South African art, and that's how they've managed to build this huge collection. He also looks at our local wine industry. Of course, we are used to beverages doing really well, South African breweries being one of the biggest companies in the world and he looks at that company through its various iterations and then a lot of the smaller entrants who are kind of causing disruption in the space. Speaking of disruption, companies like Uber have inspired a generation of dynamic tech entrepreneurs and he looks at Sweep South. Aisha Pandor is the entrepreneur there who has kind of used some of the technology that inspired Uber to solve real South African problems around domestic work as well as taking this idea to London and Egypt and adapting it there. One of the things I found most interesting about the book is that throughout it, he kind of highlights the skills of successful entrepreneurs. And kind of the clearest kind of message that comes through is that entrepreneurs who are very successful are able to discern what information is important and what information should be rejected. And I think in a world where our smartphones are so accessible, this has become a real skill. Now, we all know that South Africa has a major number of systemic issues. I don't need to tell you about how we're still feeling the lingering effects of lockdown, the problems at ESCOM, the skills shortages, the excessive red tape, or the high employment. And I was feeling quite despondent, you know, until I read this book. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with him a few weeks ago. And I asked him, why this book? Why now? And he did say that it was important for us to reflect on the resilience and the innovation that we have uh, ingrained in South African culture. We've been through a lot. We're always living through the worst of times. But despite that, we managed to kind of pull through and innovate. I did ask him if South Africa had a scenario where it would be okay. And his answer was a resounding yes. So I struggle with the subtitle because I don't think that it is a how-to guide. I am certainly too risk averse to be an entrepreneur. But what I will say is that it is a great antidote to all the negativity that we hear right now. It's packed with trivia and interesting facts. It's well-researched and it's definitely worth a read. Bruce Whitfield's Genius was published by Pan Macmillan South Africa and currently retails for around 350 rand.
That was our third track of the show, and that was by a composer mentioned in the Hernan Diaz book called Trust that we reviewed earlier on in the show. The track is called Pavani for Sleeping Beauty from the Mother Goose Suite by Maurice Ravel, performed here by the Adelaide Philharmonic, streaming for you live from the Fine Music Radio studios at the Artscape Building in Cape Town. So it's around the world and through the ages with that track, right here on Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Our next segment hosts an interview with an internationally best-selling author. Louisa Trigger was recently in Cape Town to launch her new phenomenon, a book called Mad Woman, and Beryl Eichenberger was lucky enough to chat to her in our studios. I absolutely loved Louisa's last book. It was called The Dragon Lady. She really does write the most excellent historical fiction. There's a special place in my heart for historical fiction. I think it's such a smart way for people to learn about things that happened in the past and I find it so inspiring to then go and research what actually happened. So I'm looking forward to hearing about this new book and then later reading it. Welcome to the show, Louisa. Author of three novels, Louisa Traeger, is here with us from the UK on a book tour for her latest book, Mad Woman. Here is a story that will capture the hearts of all women who love the authentic news, who admire how female investigative journalists will go out on a limb to get the story, risk their lives to peel back the layers of corruption and bring the story to the public's attention. But it wasn't until the late 19th century that women were even partially accepted into this man's world, mostly doing domestic stories, cooking, crafts, books, until one ambitious and brave young woman in Victoria, New York, Nellie Bly, changed all that. Welcome, Louisa. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, Beryl. I'm so happy to be on your show and in South Africa. Well, what was wonderful to hear earlier was that you're partly South African. Yes, so. that's right. <laughs> My late mom came from Durban, and I still have family in Johannesburg. So, I, you know, I feel very connected to South Africa. I love it here. And please claim me as a so we, we have, honorary we, we South African We have already author. claimed you as a South African <laughs> But you weren't always a writer. You started off as a, a classical violinist. That's right. I trained as a classical violinist. I freelanced with various orchestras in London and I taught. And then I got ill. I had to take a year out and I decided that I wanted to work with words and not music. And this came to me as a fully formed idea when I woke up one morning. So I think it must have been simmering under the surface. But in fact, music was the best training for being a writer. And I can talk a bit Please about that. Please do, because like, I think it's really interesting to the listeners. Well, at its most basic level, music teaches you to glue your butt to a chair and spend hours by yourself honing your craft. And, you know, as a writer, I think discipline is the most important attribute so it did that for me then there are all sorts of parallels between music and writing like you know color and rhythm dialogue the ability to blend many voices or make one voice stand out and you know I could fill the mm -hmm. whole interview talking about those parallels but also as a performer on stage you've got your audience in the palm of your hand and you need to keep them entranced and take them on a journey with you and that is so true of writers and their readers you know you're really saying come take my hand come with me I'm going to tell you a story so there's also that parallel well you certainly do that with mad woman you have 
been drawn to strong women and in your other novels, perhaps we can talk about the first two novels and then we're going to go and chat about our dear Nellie. But you deal with what we would term inconvenient women. Absolutely, and I love that term. So, yes, I've always been drawn to writing about women who are trailblazers and who struggle to find their place in the world. My debut novel, The Lodger, is about British modernist writer Dorothy Richardson, who lived in London at the beginning of the 20th century. And she was a complete trailblazer in the way she wrote and in the way she lived her life. She wrote Stream of Consciousness before James Joyce or Virginia Woolf. And she lived the most unconventional life. She couldn't conform to any of the roles that were expected of women. She had an affair with H.G. Wells, who was the husband of her oldest school friend, and she was bisexual. You know, she was remarkable. And then Lady Virginia Courtauld was a complete free spirit with a tattoo running the length of her leg, and only her husband apparently knew how far it went. (laughs) And She and her husband moved to Zimbabwe where there were liberals. They helped Mugabe when it seemed like he was a good guy. And, yep, she was another extraordinary woman. So what drew you to Nellie Bly, apart from the fact that she was strong and inconvenient and all the rest of it? So I think what really got me, what gripped me, was wanting to know what kind of person could fake madness and get committed to an asylum for the sake of a newspaper scoop that got my imagination. And she she was always drawn to the plight of poor women. In the book you talk about factory workers, she talks about the yes. factory workers and everything else. But what I think made me cringe was how very easy it was for a woman to be committed. Let's talk a little yes. bit about that because Nellie got herself committed. Yes, yes. Well, What shocked me in my research was realizing that so many of the so-called mad women were not mad at all, that they perhaps had postnatal depression they couldn't get over or their husbands are tired of them. They took too many lovers and they just didn't conform to society's narrative. And so the asylum was an acceptable way of dealing with inconvenient women. How did you get under the skin of Nellie? Because she is a very, very powerful person character. She really is. She's extraordinary. I immersed myself in her world. I went to the island, you know, the setting of my book. I read everything that she wrote and that had been written about her. And I also wrote my book during London's first lockdown. When I it's a very difficult time in my life when I was feeling trapped, isolated. Scared, isolated, yes. I'm really sad that we don't have very much more time, but I must say that there were moments when I had to put the book down because I was just so distressed by what she was going through. But what a wonderful portrayal of a woman who trailblazed into what we call investigative journalism. In those days was called stunt journalism, which I thought was quite interesting. In a last word, what would you say about Nellie? Well, she pioneered a path for women journalists and she has inspired countless journalists on both sides of the Atlantic. Mad Woman is by Louisa Traeger and is published by Bloomsbury. Thank you so much, Louisa. Thank you for having me, Beryl. It's been a pleasure. I love that interview. Louisa, I'm really looking forward to reading your book even more now. This next track 
The Simple Gift from Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland, performed by the National Philharmonic. And it's yet another track inspired by the book Trust by Hernan Diaz that Vanessa Levenstein reviewed earlier in the show. Welcome back to the show. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host Paige Nick. 
and the whole thing is sponsored by Exclusive Books. As we start to wind down the show, we bring you another fascinating interview. Philip Todras always has something interesting for us, and today is definitely no exception. Philip joins us to chat to June Bam Hutchinson, who is a professor of African Feminist Studies and heads up the San and Kwe unit at the University of Cape Town Centre for African Studies. The book they're discussing today is called Ozzy Told Me, Why Cape Her Storyographies Matter. In this book, the indigenous stories, visions and rituals passed down an ancient matrilineal line of knowledge keepers are recognized once more as critical sources of knowledge and physical and emotional well-being. Sure, this sounds like important work. All right, I'm paying attention. Let's hear about it. Aussie Told Me, a book by June Bam, has the important subtitle, Why Cape Her Stereographies Matter. And I have June with me right now. And June, I'm amazed by the book, although you might be focusing on the Koi, the San, Hoisin. It's a book that really everybody interested in knowing where they come from, perhaps even where they're going, needs to read. And I think where we need to start is, what is an Osi? And what did she tell you? Thank you, Philip, and thank you, listeners. So an Osi is a very familiar word on the Cape Flats and beyond. And there's an assumption that it's Oatster coming from Afrikaans. And, but it's actually a coy word, and it refers to the elder woman, the woman with all the knowledge, the respected woman in communities and families that come from this particular past. And so often our interpretation, in fact, the Western Cape and Cape Town, for example, of the past is very much it comes from the the narratives that were written by white males and that have become the predominant ways of us understanding the past of the Khoi and the San people at the Cape today and thinking that they've somehow died out with a smallpox. But the OC reminds us that they're still very much alive and within our communities. And if we speak to them, then we'll get a whole different, fresh and new interpretation of that past. It's also very interesting because, as you say, we're not talking simply about his story. It's her story, their story, and the layers of storytelling which we need to acknowledge. Absolutely. Now, some of the things that we spoke about and you talk about are some three very specific words in helping us to access and to remember things. Can you give us some of those words that you found important in trying to draw in your story? Okay, so these words, you know, we speak about linguicide, which is the loss and the erasure of language, which happened at the Cape. This was the region where Kwekwekuvap was once spoken. Today, people associate Kwekwekuvap just with the northern regions of, of South Africa and Namibia without knowing that that language was systematically erased at the Cape. And the Osis were often those who carried on the knowledge through Kwekwekuvap, through these indigenous languages and San languages. So that's linguist side. And the other concept is, of course, culture side. And that means the erasure and the killing of, of culture. So it was assumed or women and these Osis and the people on the Cape Flats who then became constructed under apartheid as colored by the Fervurdian regime, seen as people without a culture, people who are not from Africa, 
and um, you know they have no ancestors, they have no roots, and so their culture was taken away. And some of that culture actually survived the rituals, the herbal knowledge. So you know, but the, on the parade, the Kreyafrawa, you know, the women of the herbs. But these were serious knowledge keepers and people who could give us another lens into an ancient landscape and and past of the Cape. And so that is culture side, and then. Episteme aside, the erasure of knowledge systems, of epistemes, of, of knowledge structures that, was, that were here. And those knowledge structures relate to plants, medicinal values that they have, pharmaceutical formula for certain diseases, how to read astronomy, etc. And these things survived on the Cape Flats. And they were hidden, but they survived, especially through the OC. And so episteme aside, with the University of Cape Town is, for example, used to be a place of these uh, archives of medicines, of plants, of fainbos, of rituals. And so written this book just to remind us of those very important knowledges that we need to acknowledge and we need to, if we want to restore ecosystems, we need to, to understand these. But you've also gone to a lot of trouble finding people to interview and tell us the story. So when you look at of colonial storytelling it has a new filter and I think that's what makes this book so alive and interesting I mean your interviews go up right until 2021 which is the date of publication of your book Mm -hmm. so they really are powerful stories about showing us that there was a history pre the colonial period Exactly. Yes, so so these are 29 individuals um, spread, and some are, of course, uh, related to my own family, but much broader than that is 29 people diverse, young and old, 80s, in the 80s, going into the 90s, 70s. And they actually carry this knowledge right into contemporary times. And now that knowledge has been passed over some in secret because of the fear that people still have. And, and, and there's still that kind of shame, that sense of, of, not a be, of being worthless, of not having any knowledge, of not belonging. And so it's been a long process. It's been five years. <laughs> and also includes uh, some people I've spoken to in Marcel Bay and worked with. And, um, yeah, so a range of, of knowledge holders. And one thing they have in common is how they have inherited or how they've been taught this knowledge from the OC. OC told me Her Stereographies Matter by June Bam is a fascinating read, which I would recommend to everybody. For the record, June is the Associate Professor of African Feminist Studies at University of Cape Town, and she was the one who established the San and Koi Center at UCT. The book is published in 2021. It's an imprint of Fanelli of Jacana, and it's a book that you must read to know where we're at and perhaps where we're going. Truly fascinating and important stuff. Thank you so much, Philip, for tracking this book down, and thank you so much, Professor, for joining us and bringing your wisdom. Before we go, I want to tell you a bit about something I've been reading and listening to. Do you ever listen to audiobooks? There are always huge debates online about whether listening to a book counts as having read it. And of course, there are studies out there that prove your point, whichever side of the argument you land on. But ultimately, I'm a fan of audiobooks. I find there's never enough time to read. And if my to-read piles get any higher, they will surely topple over in the night and crush me in my sleep. So if I can find a way to multitask and literally read while I'm doing other things, like driving or working out, then what an added bonus. Since I started working from home some years ago, my commute got shorter. So I don't get to listen quite as much as I used to. 
but when I can, it's an absolute treat. If you've never listened to an audiobook before, there are a number of sources. I use an online app called Audible. You can buy single titles or subscribe. I have a subscription, which for something in the region of 300 Rand, depending on the exchange rate, allows me to download one title a month. And these credits roll over to the next month if you don't use them. One of the downsides of Audible is that very few South African titles are available at this stage. But I suspect it's only a matter of time before we catch up, especially in this world where audio media like podcasts are gaining such traction. And thank goodness we have exclusive books. So for those South African titles, you know exactly where to go. Audible has a feature which offers a library of complimentary content for subscribers, which means over and above the paid-for title you get every month in your subscription, you also have access to an entire library of free content. These are a wide selection of old and new novels, plays and short stories. I find it a great way to supplement my listening if I run out of credits in a month. But over and above that, it's also introduced me to some wonderful writers whose work I may otherwise never have come across. So this is all a very long-winded way to get to the book I wanted to tell you about today, which I downloaded as free content off Audible. But fortunately, it's also available as a paperback. The book is called Metropolitan Stories, and it's by Christine Coulson. It's a series of short stories, all set in the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. Some of the characters reappear from story to story, which, together with the museum itself, gives the stories a golden thread and makes it feel more like a novel than a series of disconnected essays. I have to tell you, I have loved this book. I dragged it out for months, listening to a bit at a time, never wanting it to end. When you first start listening to Metropolitan Stories, it takes a while to get your head around the style and the format, as it's magic realism, which isn't a genre I read very often. But this is magic realism taken to the next level and done quite differently and more real than magic. It's extremely inventive and imaginative, and the writing is magnificent. The paintings and statues in the museum literally take on a life of their own, alongside the security guards, employees, janitors, curators, and visitors to the gallery. In fact, sometimes the stories are told in the voice of the artworks themselves. And I don't think I'll ever view a museum or a piece of art or a sculpture or an art gallery in the same way ever again. In this collection, the Metropolitan Museum is almost a character itself. And the author gives so much delicious behind-the-scenes info on the day-to-day -day running of the museum that it prompted me to Google her association with the Met. There's no way she could have known all of this if she didn't have a close relationship. And yes, it turns out that the author, Christine Coulson, worked at the Met for 25 years, often writing speeches or lectures for the museum's director to deliver. Which makes sense. The lives of the people who work there and the visitors all ring so true. After listening to the last story in the collection, I promptly ordered a paperback copy. I cannot live without this book in my life. Then I went back to the beginning to listen to it again. I wasn't ready to be out of the Metropolitan Museum quite yet. In fact, I may never be. So my next Audible credit will have to wait. That wraps up our September show. Does that mean it's spring yet? I think so. A big thank you as always to Mwandi Lobi and the FMR team for building this show for us. And thanks as always to our responsive sponsors, Exclusive Books, there's no book they don't have. And of course, my thanks to the wonderful reviewers, authors and publishers who help make this show possible every month. But the biggest thanks goes to you, our dear listener and reader. 
Without your passion for books and enthusiasm for building your next astonishingly good to-read pile, there would be no need for this show, and perhaps even for books. And I can't imagine living in a world without books and readers, and this show. So that's me, your host, Paige Nick, signing out for the month, until we meet again in October. We play out with a finale from The Firebird by Igor Stravinsky, performed by the Philharmonic Orchestra of Rome. And this composer also comes out of the book Trust by Hernan Diaz that was reviewed earlier in the show. If you missed any of the reviews or any of the book titles or authors' names or even any of the songs, we'll be placing the podcast of this show on fmr.co.za right after the show. Happy listening and happy reading. was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people.
The Exclusive Books Recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 